Well, good morning, uh, Hope Presbyterian Church. Let's get this to work. Here we go. Uh, as Derek mentioned, my name's Russell. If we haven't had the chance to meet, I would love to meet you. Uh, my wife, Madeline, and I moved here about two months ago in May from Austin and have just loved getting acquainted with the city of New Braunfels with this church. Uh, recently got to go to Schlitterbahn, and let me say I'm a huge fan of what y'all guys are doing here. Um, I've got some more Schlitterbahn notes in here, but I'll go ahead and skip past those, and we can get right into the meat of this. Today, we're picking back up with the fruits of the Spirit. We took a break last week with Lee, but we're going to jump back in today. And you'll remember our aim in this summer series is to see the fruits of the Spirit as just that. Fruits of a living tree. Sometimes we're tempted to look at them as ornaments on a Christmas tree, just dressing up the outside, but doing very little to actually affect that tree. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, what human beings need isn't improvement, it's redemption. Our text this morning comes from the prophet Micah, the sixth chapter, and we'll read all the way to the eighth verse. I believe it's up on the screen behind me. If you have your scriptures, you can flip there. Micah 6, 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has made an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Will you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Holy Father, we thank you for the privilege to gather together and to worship you. I pray that this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning we've landed on goodness as our next fruit of the Spirit to examine. And if you're anything like me, maybe you're always a bit surprised to see goodness in this list of the fruits of the Spirit. 
mean, the other ones make sense, self-control, kindness, but the word good in our culture really doesn't seem to have much meaning at all, right? We've used it, and we've used it, and we've used it over and over again. There are countless ways to use this word. How are you doing today? I'm good. Are you hungry? I'm good. Someone who always follows the rules is called a goody two-shoes. Perhaps you know or use the phrase, good fences make good neighbors. And somehow, and I think this really drives home the point that this word has no meaning, we let Applebee's coin the phrase, eating good in the neighborhood. I mean, come on, we've got to have some weight behind that word good, right? There are countless ways to use this word, and typically in America, in our culture, if something is really good, we call it great. So how does this fit? How is goodness a fruit of the Spirit? I think today, using Micah 6 as a guidepost, we'll see how biblical goodness isn't the trite goodness that saturates our culture that mostly focuses on right doing, but instead is compassion, mercy, and kindness simply for the sake of being compassionate, merciful, and kind. As we look at Micah 6, we'll divide our text into three parts this morning. In the first part, we'll see God's good character. After that, we'll see God's good world and how we twist that world's And third, we'll see our good response, the response that God asks of us. That's God's good character, his good world, and how we twist it, and our good response. So first, God's good character. As we examine his good character, first we'll look at Micah, and then we'll take a more general look at God's goodness throughout time, even up to our present day. So Micah 6, it opens on a courtroom scene, an indictment. The Lord has brought an indictment against his people. Israel has been unfaithful to God. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament narrative, this is no surprise. Israel has a long, long history of being unfaithful to their God. They disobey. They go after false gods. Perhaps they worship the true God in an improper way. They're always unfaithful. And God begins his case by recounting his immense goodness and faithfulness to his people. He sets himself out there. He says, this is who I am. He reminds Israel that when a rival king, Balak, sought to curse them, God sought to bless them. He reminds them of when they crossed the Jordan River from Shittim to Gilgal, even though they had spent the last 40 years grumbling and complaining in the wilderness. God says, see, even when you're disobedient, even when you don't deserve it, I seek to bless you. I seek to love you because he's good. That's who he is. God's nature is to be good. He doesn't love Israel out of obligation. He doesn't love them begrudgingly. He loves them because he's good. That's who he is. 
And for us, living on the other side of Jesus, our Messiah, we have even more examples of the goodness of God in the life of Jesus. Jesus perfectly embodied biblical goodness in his 33 years on earth. In fact, Jesus spent so much time during those 33 years doing what? Walking around, healing the sick, hanging out with people who nobody else wanted to hang out with, gathering children near to him. And what a beautiful picture that is of goodness. See, Jesus, he didn't need to do any of those things to fulfill the biblical mandate given to him by God. So why did he do them? He did them because he's good, simply for the sake of being good. When Christ ascended into heaven, he promised his disciples that he wouldn't leave them alone, that he would give them a helper. And what did Jesus do? He made good on that promise. As we move forward in the timeline of history past Jesus, past Pentecost, we can see countless more examples of God being good. How he's preserved the church by sending men and women to reform, to strengthen, and to care for this church, our church body, and countless other churches meeting across the world right now. And the beautiful thing about our faith is that this God who we read about in Micah, who recounts his goodness to Israel all throughout history, that that same God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And we can have faith that that God will be with us and will seek to bless us, just like he sought to bless and care for Israel. I think Psalm 23 paints a beautiful image of God's overarching and pursuing goodness. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me now. Psalm 23, a beautiful psalm, reads like this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. You rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Friends, God is a good shepherd. He pursues us, and he chases after us with his goodness, with his mercy. And the shepherd does this not because us, the sheep, have anything special to offer him, but because he loves us and because he is good.
So that's God's goodness, and that's God's kind of good world that he's created for us. And so point two this morning is how do we respond typically? What is our typical response to God's goodness? When we hear about goodness as a fruit of the Spirit, what do we do? Well, I think there's two ways that typically people in our world respond. And the most common in the church, I believe, is the way of legalism. This sense of duty or ritual, right? Doing something out of obligation, being good, because that's just what we have to do, even if we don't want to do it. We remove God entirely, and we say, okay, here are the good things that I have to do, and we go try to do those things. Israel here in Micah is a classic example of this legalism. What do they say? How do they respond to the good world God has given them? God, we love you so much, and you're so right. We messed up. We're sorry. My bad. We love you. We're going to give you our whole heart, and that's that. No. They don't say that, and it really isn't even close to that. They say this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I mean, do you pick up on that? They respond to God's goodness by creating a to-do list, a checklist of things that they think God might have them do in order to ascend to his level of goodness. They remove the heart and they go straight to the action. But friends, aren't we guilty every day of doing something very similar to this or maybe even this very same thing? We buy into a lie that if we want to ascend to God's level, that if we want to be okay with God, that the way to do that is by maybe waking up 30 minutes early to read our Bible, listening to Christian music on the way to work, even though we really don't want to, and hanging out with some people who maybe we really don't want to, but we just do it, right? Because that's what God wants. And maybe then, at the end of our life, God will let us into heaven. I think all too often we're tempted to treat our Christian life this way, the legalistic way. Imagine something with me for a second. Imagine tomorrow morning I woke up and I thought, you know what? I think I want to play in the NFL. Sure, I was a third-string quarterback in high school, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. Everybody still has their chance. So I go out to Dick's Sporting Goods. I buy the most expensive cleats, get some eye black. I buy a helmet, too, get some gym shorts. Then I hire a quarterback coach to start fixing my form. I hire a nutritionist to start making sure I eat right. I skip the donut table when I walk into church on Sunday. I practice. I do the drills. start lifting weights. You know, would any of that make me an NFL quarterback? 
No, it wouldn't. It's too, someone would have to come and transform me into Patrick Mahomes in order for me to even have a chance to be an NFL quarterback. But that's how we think in our legalism, right? If we do as the good Christian does, if I just do what the good quarterbacks do, then that will make me right. That's what makes me good. But that isn't what God asks of us. God asks us to surrender and to be transformed. That's the good life. That's goodness. Paul tells us in Romans 12, in Romans 12 that our worship is presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. He doesn't say that we need to present our Sunday mornings, those 30 minutes, once a day. But he tells us that the only way to discern what is good, to start cultivating the fruit of goodness in our lives and in our hearts, is by allowing the Spirit to transform our hearts and our minds. So that's one way that we're tempted to twist God's good world, the way of legalism. And I think there's another way that folks often twist God's worlds. We'll call this way the way of the secularist. And the way goes something like this. You know, people don't really need God to tell them what's right and wrong. We all kind of know it anyways. In fact, there's a wide variety of ways to be good found in a wide variety of different religions. Perhaps you've heard this from somebody before. What they do is they take God's good worlds and they try to extract all these good things. It's just like legalism, but perhaps a different side of the same coin. You can go to your local bookstore and pick up the book entitled Good Without God, written by prominent atheist Greg Epstein, who was actually just recently named in 2021 the chief chaplain at Harvard University. Harvard University. A New York Times article about Epstein's appointment included a variety of quotes from all kinds of students who were raised in different religious backgrounds who explained how they've come to learn that it's great. They, they really don't need all this messy religion baked in. They can just take all the goodness and believe all the same things without all that mess. Ultimately, however, where does this concept of goodness that they know in their head come from? Perhaps it comes from one of the great atheist scholars of our world. Does it originate with Caesar, Plato, Socrates, maybe Friedrich Nietzsche? No. Friends, this concept of goodness that all of them know, that all of them think that they've figured out, originates with the Bible. We have Christianity to thank for all of the con all of our concept of goodness that we've come to know in our world. 
an author by the name of Tom Holland. Not that Tom Holland, before you get too excited. He's a scholar, a professor, and surprisingly, an atheist, wrote a book in 2020 entitled Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. You'll remember Holland, he's an atheist, and he writes, he paints a picture of the great debt our, our world owes to Christianity for much of their idea of goodness. And what does he say? Well, Holland includes examples such as, but not limited to, that the idea of universal human rights and the equality of every individual does not have the enlightenment to thank for its foundation, but actually Christian lawyers in the 12th century developed this idea based on Genesis and our creation in God's image. He goes on. The idea that every person has a right to his or her own body and therefore sex must be completely consensual was a startling new concept founded with Christianity. He tells about how the last pagan emperor of Rome, Julian, sought to revive paganism in the face of surging Christianity. But the pagans despised the weak. They despised the needy. And Christians poured themselves out for the sick and the poor and the infants. As a result, the masses turned to Christ and paganism faded. Lastly, Holland shows how the birth of modern science depended on a Christian worldview as the world as real and not an illusion, as many Eastern thinkers were prone to think. A world created by a single mind with universal laws. See, secularism fails to see that where they claim that the foundation they claim to stand upon was actually built by Christians throughout all time. They fail to see that Socrates, Plato, these other great thinkers of secularism really didn't view, have a view of goodness at all. That this view of goodness, of equality, of a right to our own body, of science, all of these concepts were founded with Christian thought, with a Christian idea of goodness. So what now? We've seen two improper responses to God's good world, our legalism and our secularism. But here in Micah 6.8, we finally reach our good response, right? And perhaps you know this, this verse. It's a very famous verse, Micah 6.8. The verse reads like this. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. How do we act out goodness? How do we ascend before the Lord our God on high? God tells us, and the answer ends up being pretty simple. He says, all you have to do is do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with me. 
We're called to model Christ in that same compassion, love, and mercy that he showed people when he walked around on this earth. And what does it look like to establish justice in your workplace, in your neighborhood, and in your family? To care for the sick, to care for the widow, to care for the brokenhearted, because you want to, not out of an obligation. What if, as Derek posed to us a few weeks ago, we woke up every day wondering, who can I be kind to? How can I establish justice today? That is what it looks like to cultivate goodness. And lastly, as I close this morning, I love that last part of Micah 6.8. What is goodness? What is the good life? It's just a walk. It's a humble walk. Perhaps in your pride, sometimes you're tempted to make this life a strut. You think, hey, I've got this all figured out. You know, I'm a Christian. I know what I'm doing. I've got my head screwed on straight. And you start to strut through life. Perhaps in your despair, you've just been beaten down by life and you want to sit down and you don't really want to walk at all. Or maybe in the haste and the busyness of life, you just want to run. You want to run through life. But what does God tell us to do? I think it's so beautiful that God knows what each of us need, what the good life is, it's just a walk. And we all know how to walk, right? We do it every day. And guess what? God doesn't leave us to walk alone. He says we get to walk humbly with our God. I think it's a beautiful picture. And I imagine a baby just learning how to walk and starting to take their first steps. And what do they do? They reach up just trying to grasp a hold of their parent's finger just a little bit because they just want to walk. And you walk with them. And it's okay if you fall, right? That's, it's just a walk. And that is our Christian life. That is goodness. We're just walking. And as we walk, guess what? We get to look up, look forward, Look back in history to Jesus Christ, our Savior, who came down, God made man, and humbled himself. We get to look to Jesus who came and lived the good life, who was perfectly good for you and for me. He died the death that we could never die because he is that good, because he loves us. He didn't do it out of obligation. He did it for the sake of his goodness. Friends, this morning, today, we get to walk humbly with our God. And that is what it looks like to be good. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Holy God,
We praise you for your goodness. We look to you in humility and ask you to send your spirit to produce godly fruit within us. Will you minimize us so that you can magnify yourself in our lives? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.